Welcome to the rooftop. The uh, title of this episode is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? This is a driveway episode because this one is definitely one that I need to walk and talk with you, uh, explore some stuff with you. Uh, I'll get right into it. I woke up this morning, got home from a long trip uh, out of the country and opened a text from a very, very dear friend. Now, I'm not going to give her real name because um, she probably wouldn't care, but I'm just not going to. Uh, her, I'm, I'm going to call her Erin for the, 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 the sake of this uh, episode. But Erin, it was just a couple of words on the text. The words were, is it worth it? And I kind of stood there with my brain fog that I have every morning and, and just blinking at the screen, trying to immediately make sense of the words I was looking at. And almost right away, I, I got a sense of what she was asking me. And my brain went in a million different directions. How do I answer this? Um, what does what does Erin need right now? Where is she right now? Is she okay? You know, but, but I tried to just like take a breath and, and really listen to the question through that text. And the first words that came to me without even really thinking about it and that I typed back to her were, yes, yes, it, without hesitation, it's worth it. Um, and, and I went on to type to her, you know, the kids of our allies, many of them are safe in America and in the West because of your effort and the efforts of your teammates and and also the allies themselves. So many of them that have come here not only have a future for their children, but, but also for themselves because of your selfless, tireless work. And, you know, many of you listening to this know this could be any of you who has done this kind of work. Um, and it could certainly be beyond, you know, uh, folks helping the, our allies. But in this case, that was the context, I believe, of what Erin was asking about. And, and, and she's been through a lot. She's just exhausted. She's, she's been through so much since the abandonment of our allies and, and trying to help them not only get safe passage, but then resettle in the United States and just deal with all of the personalities that are associated with that and the stress of, of her own family and the stress of herself and trying to take care of herself. And, and I've seen the impact, I've experienced the impact that this kind of work has on your, your health and your, your, your peace of mind and your point of view. It is, uh, I wrote, I went on and I wrote to her, you know, but it is very, very lonely work, but yes, it's worth it. And she typed, thank you. And I, I could tell she was in a, a bit of a better place. We had a little bit more conversation and, and I could tell she seemed to be okay. And I just said, look, I'm here if you need me. But it just, I couldn't shake it, you guys. I, I just kept thinking and thinking about that question. Is it worth it? And, and the reason then is it started to, because, you know, so much in life we do autobiographically, right? And when we engage other humans, I started to think about this for myself. Is it worth it? And I've, I've been asking myself this question for a long time. 
not all the time. Most of the time I know exactly that it's worth it. But sometimes when I, I hit the wall, and I've done some podcasts with you guys where I'm exploring that question and asking myself that question. And, and, and of late, um, I will tell you, you know, we got in, we were on a red-eye flight, Monty and I were last night. And we flew from L.A., well, we were in Mexico, then to L.A., and then we got on a flight at like midnight and flew all night long, landed when the sun was coming up in Tampa, got home. You know, my mom and dad are here. They're just going through a shit show with their health. My brother was in from Australia, so we didn't go to bed. You know, we were exhausted, but we stayed up because we wanted to visit with our family. Um, And I will tell you where I am in my life, you're doing a lot of caregiving, to my mom and dad who are down here with us, and I'm blessed to be doing it. Um, running a veteran storytelling workshop this week. We're standing up last out again. It's going to Staten Island, and it's just a few months away, you know, and this is going to be a massive show that we're doing uh, in honor of the New York City first responders who were at 9-11. We're continuing to support our allies that are still trying to get their families over here or that are on the run. And... You know, Monty and I are build, trying to build a business that um, that impacts this this churn of distraction, disengagement, and disconnection around the world. I'm smoked, <laughs> you know. I and, and and there's people running a lot harder than me, and I know that. And that that was not what I just went over with you. Was really just meant to be kind of context so that you know where I am as I was processing Aaron's question, right? Is, damn, you know, I'm feeling that too, my own version of it. Um, In fact, you know, really, many of you listening to this right now are the people I respect the most, and I know that you're going through it. I know that you're probably asking yourself this same question, or you have recently, right? Is it worth it? I mean, I know for a fact that that Ben and Jess Owen are running harder than they've ever run. And they're, they're doing Herculean work. You know, I know, I know Herb and Corey have gone through massive change in their life, right? Um, I know Jason Houck, who is doing such great work with Global Friends of Afghanistan and just trying to keep, you know, people focused on what they need to be focused on with our Afghan allies. I know Legend and Jazz with the National Resistance Front our Afghan allies, but it's not just the, the whole Afghanistan problems that I'm using that again as context in my life. But, you know, so many of our veterans that I'm friends with who are just amazing humans, amazing leaders are really struggling and asking themselves, is it worth it? You know, shit, is it worth it, man? Um, my buddy, Steve, who I've literally known since probably 1994, five from from seventh group we've been you know he was one of my captains he's like my kid really we've been friends a long time we've been through a lot together village stability operations and just trip after trip to afghanistan and and i i just trust this guy more than just about anybody on the planet he was involved in pineapple and he's been through so much you know he's been through so much in his life so much loss as a combat veteran in iraq and, and, and things that he's seen in Afghanistan, Africa. Uh, it's tough, man. And he struggles, like, really, he's been struggling hard. And we, Monty and I just saw him and his wife, like, a few days ago. And, and then I, I learned that 
the darkness just almost took him a few days ago. He made a public post about it on Facebook and it just floored me because like we were just with him and it just, it hit me so hard. Like this is a guy who has given literally, I'm not kidding, his entire adult life to the nation, his entire adult life, same with his wife. And they've been kicked in the nuts so many times over the last couple of years. It's just, it's unfathomable how much they've been kicked in the nuts, both in terms of their health, in terms of their entrepreneurial work, in terms of just the shit life has thrown at them. Yet they keep coming back for more and they keep putting more of themselves into the arena. And you know, that question, is it worth it? Like at what point, you know, when you're on, you know, when you're on your knees and the sweat's running off the tip of your nose, like, is it worth it? Um, I know my kids are going through it, you know, all three of my boys are working their angles in life and, and trying to make an impact. And, and they ask themselves all the time, is, is it worth it? You know, my youngest son is, is playing baseball right now and it's college baseball and it's so difficult. It's, it's so challenging and uh, so much is required to play at that level. And, you know, for him, that's his world, man. Is it, is it worth it to go through all of that? So I thought it would be something good for you and me to talk about. I thought it would be something good for me to walk down this driveway and explore with you in real time, in real time, because this is, this is, we have to, we have to face this question all the time, right? We do, don't we? I mean, we have to face this question all the time and we have to, I think we have to find ways to answer it, whether the answer is yes or no, we have to find a way to answer the question and we have to find the courage to ask it. And so I thought this would be a good topic for you and me today. And I'm going to start, so I'm going to bring it back to, is it worth it, right? And the, just a question on its face value. I'm, I'm putting it out to you just the way Aaron put it out to me. Is it worth it, right? And, and, and then I'm going to follow it with this quote, right? This quote from Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. This is what Frankl says. And of course, in this context, man is, you know, universal here. I hope that's okay. Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. Now, I know that's a lot. I'm just going to let you just kind of chew on that for a second, right? And again, this is, it was written a long time ago, man, but it's for, it's for all of us, all genders. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you again. Is it worth it, right? And, and, so, and so I'm going to bring Frankel's perspective here. Because we always are asking, what's the meaning of my life, right? But, but, but ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is. But rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life. And he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. And to life, he can only respond by being responsible. 
And I just, I love that so much um, on so many levels. And I think it really is an excellent anchor point for us to pivot into this conversation of, it, of if it's worth it for you. Because, you know, if you demonstrate the personal responsibility for, for, for fulfilling on your mandate of serve, serving something bigger than yourself, then I believe it is worth it. But do you believe that that is your mandate? <laughs> right? I do believe that if you step into the sunlight and you address the personal mandate that is bestowed upon you to play a bigger game, to do something bigger than yourself, then it is worth it. And it is by stepping into the arena and just showing up and doing the work towards that higher purpose that it makes it worth it. But the question is, do you believe that that mandate exists? Do you, you see what I mean? Where I'm going with this is before we can truly answer, is it worth it? I think we have to really define what game we're playing. You know, the first special operations imperatives, there's these imperatives that we have in special ops. We've had them for years. But the first one has always been my favorite. And I I believe there's a reason it's the first one. And my team sergeants always used to drive this into our head when we were young Green Berets. The first soft imperative is always understand your operational environment. Right. And, and, and what, what that means really is you never take for granted that your operational environment is the same. It's always changing. Stasis is for amateurs. Life is always changing, always moving. The world never stays still. Right. Even though we'd like it to. So we have to understand our operational environment all the time, because the second we think it have, we have it figured out, it changes. And so in this case, your ability to answer that call of a higher purpose, to play that bigger game, it is tougher than ever. I believe there's a reason that I got that text from Aaron. I believe that there's a reason that Steve felt the dragon breath on his face after so many years and years and years of grinding. I believe that there's a reason that my father, who at 80 years old is still trying to restore a tree that's functionally extinct as he deals with a stroke in his third bout with cancer, you know, and, and tumors the size of a fucking basketball in his stomach, right? I, it's tougher than it's ever been. And, and I think there's, there's two reasons for this. And this is gets to that operational environment, but it, 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 we've got to be conscious of it is, is the first is the churn. You guys hear me talk about the churn all the time, but, but, you know, I spent my entire adult life looking at social conditions as a Green Beret. And I got pretty good at at looking at the operational environment and understanding what's novel, what's new, what's different. And the churn is novel. It's what's new. It's what's different. You know, it's the reason I based that that is the enemy in my upcoming book that's coming up in the fall. Like it's the whole thing is that's the enemy. The enemy is not the relative across from you at Thanksgiving that likes Trump or Biden. The enemy is not the person that wears a mask or doesn't wear a mask, the, the enemy is the churn, right? This, 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 these massive gaps that we have that are between us and other humans around distraction, disengagement, the absence of purpose and disconnection, right? That leads ultimately to distrust. That churn 
is as bad in the country we live in today as it is in Afghanistan or any other places. It's not worse, right? And it's, it gets worse every day. It's novel. It's new. And so, so these levels of distraction and disengagement and distrust are, are epic, right? The fear-based behavior that's out there. Just look around. You know what I'm talking about. And, and the second thing that makes it tougher today to, to, to lead and to do the things that you feel like you're supposed to be doing is that nobody's coming. <laughs> you know, the, the, if, if you think about what, what it was that Aaron is doing, is, is she is, she is um, as my buddy Duke says, she is fulfilling or, 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 or addressing an Uncle Sam-sized problem with her fucking pension. <laughs> Makes no sense. Right? So civilians should not be leading efforts on resettlement of a 20-year ally. That's insane. They should not be having to evacuate them or provide them with safe houses or midwives to deliver babies. But they are. They are. Right? There should not be a veterans for the National Resistance Front because the government should be supporting the resistance in Afghanistan. And I know I'm using a lot of Afghanistan today, but it's on my heart. And hopefully this is all transferable to a whole range of other shit. But the point is, you and me, if you're listening to this, and there's a reason you are, there's a reason you're here, is that you're doing big shit in this world and you are doing it because nobody's coming to save you. That's the fact. That's just the fact, right? There is a there is a there is a woeful absence of institutional leadership, of institutional capacity, of will, and it's along all lines from governance to development to security to corporate responsibility to banking. I mean, you name it. There, that what we have traditionally relied upon in this liberal democracy, this land of abundance. As de Tocqueville said, a, a land where individualism is rightly understood, what we have always relied on are institutions we can trust, social capital with our neighbors, and, and common myths that we believe in together, that we tell ourselves and then we tell the world. How are we doing on those? Not great, man. The divisionists have taken the microphones. They have. The divisionists on both sides of the political aisle, the divisionists in the 24-7 news cycle, the divisionists who have engineered social media platforms that know that content that foments fear-based and anger-based comments about outgroups will be shared exponentially higher than a picture of your fucking cat or your nephews, right? They know this. This is, this is divisionism. This is the fomentation of disconnection and distrust with in-groups and out-groups to advance one's narrow agenda. And divisionism is everywhere. It is, it, is, it, is, it is permeating the leadership style and mannerisms of the people that we've always trusted. So what's happening? People like Aaron are having to step into the breach. People like Ben and Jess are having to step into the breach. People like my father are having to step into the breach to do what we once relied upon institutional leaders to do. Okay, fine. That's what we're dealing with. That's your Pineapple Express. But that's a lonely-ass endeavor, right? It, now, it does represent tremendous opportunity, right? It does represent tremendous opportunity if, if, this is a big if, if you subscribe 
to the self-actualization notch on the top of Maslow's pyramid, right? Starts at the bottom with your basic needs, food, shelter, security, safety, but it works its way up, doesn't it? The top of those needs is self-actualization, the playing the bigger game, serving something bigger than yourself. And if you subscribe to that being the pinnacle of a human's need, and by the way, I think it is. You know, I think Ivan Tyrrell from the Human Givens uh, College would say the same thing. You know, he says, he says that one of the most basic innate human givens is the need for meaning. So this, this need to be relevant, to play a bigger game, right? Um, there's a lot of opportunity, probably more than at any point in modern history, for people like Aaron and people like Ben and Jess and you to play a bigger game. There is tremendous opportunity for you to step into the arena and get big shit done. There really is, right? It, it, more so than at any point in the, in the, you know, the 55 years that I've been alive, but here's the thing, it's gonna require you and me to play a different game. So again, I'm going back to, is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it if you know what game you're playing, right, and you're okay with that game, and you understand how that game is gonna manifest with you, okay? So what is the game that you and I are playing, right? Because not only are we playing a different game, boys and girls, we're in a different fucking stadium. We're not even in the same stadium, okay? And, and, and metaphorically, I need you to understand that. I need you to understand that in the, you know, you always see me using the iceberg, the metaphor of the iceberg of, of the human operating system, right? So the tip of the iceberg is the modern world. That's where, you know, we are so transactional, mass technology, the represented virtual realm of our screens where our faces are down in those things all the time. You know, that's, that's the world that we think is all-encompassing and, it, you know, it, 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 it comprises everything. But the reality is it's only a couple hundred years old, right? Below the waterline on that iceberg is our more primal nature. It is the ancestry of hunting and gathering and foraging and clans and tribes and honor and shame, right? It, it, it goes way back for all of us. And... According to Jared Diamond, we're far more primal traditional than we are modern. And so understanding that the game that we play is below that waterline, right? Uh, it, it is not necessarily the transactional game, the mass technology game. It, the game that we're playing is, is more connected. It's more ancient, right? Um, the current game that most of your peers are playing and that you may even be playing too, unwittingly, or just because you're caught up in this shit, is, a, is the game of transactions, right? It is the game of, of this tip of the iceberg world that I talked about. It's important that we have that metaphorical representation in our mind because it is the world that we have socially evolved into and that we're part of, right? It, it is this mass technology, transactional, world where it's so based on the individual and that's cool right that's cool that we have a, a liberal democracy that's based on individualism and life liberty the pursuit of happiness but what happens when that goes too far what happens when individualism rightly understood 
as Tocqueville talked about in the 1800s, goes to just straight up fucking isolation. What happens when it goes to that point? What happens when it goes to every human for themselves? What happens to, I'm going to get my needs met no matter what it costs, you sons of bitches, right? What happens when that, that's I think where we are, right? We have evolved socially into this modern mechanistic world where it's all about the individual. And so that makes it very transactional. Um, it, the, the mass technology and the attention economy you know, where, where every platform that we have our face in and these represented realms um, is competing for our attention, right? And everything that we do in those virtual represented arenas is a performance. It's a performance. It's not even, it's not even real, right? It's not, it's not part of who we are. It's a performance for an audience. And so that's the game that's being played. This is performance-based attention economy where it's all about, you know, duck lips and, and selfies. And that's the game. So the metrics are radically different. The metrics are, you know, being the very, very best at what you do and making sure that everybody knows it. And in some cases, stepping on whoever you need to step to, to get to where you need to get, right? That's just how it is. That's the game. The individual, the transaction, the status, the best. But I would also subscribe to you that if that's the only tool in your kit bag, then and it's a hammer, then every problem is going to look like a nail. And that's what's got us to this crazy-ass churn that we're in. That's why uh, there's so much distraction from the social media. That's why there's so much disengagement and absence of purpose. There's just a, a lack of meaning in this individualistic, transactional-based world. And certainly there's a disconnection from ourselves, from our nature, from that primal creature, and there's distrust, right? And all of that is manifesting to create this churn that, that shows up in divisionism, where our leaders basically foment instability, and you and I demonstrate shadow tribalism, right? Where we actually only show the darker sides of tribal honor-based behavior that are around feud and vengeance, right? Uh, and the absence of community and connection and all of that's gone. And I know this is a lot, but, but this part's really, really important because if we don't understand the game that's being played around us, it's very difficult to discern the game that we're playing, right? I believe that rather than play that individual transactional game that everybody else is kind of playing, which is lemmings running off a cliff, if you ask me, and I'll tell you why at the end of this podcast. I believe the, the more profound game is where our intention, our true north, is laser focused and locked into strategic impact. Strategic impact in the world. And I believe our metric by which we navigate that, that, that intention towards impact is relevance. And an intention of strategic impact and a metric by which we measure our behavior and our performance around relevance to the people we serve. What do you think about that? Right? So focusing on being relevant instead of being the best. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not the best at something if you're relevant. In fact, I would submit to you that it is a, a byproduct of being as relevant as you can, that you are the best in many cases at what you do. But not in an individualistic, look at me, end zone dance kind of way. 
And that's just a different game. When your intention is focused on strategic impact and when your metric is on relevance to the people you serve, you're playing a different game. That is the game that Ben and Jess Owen play. That's how they stay sober. That is the game that I believe I play with Last Out and what we do with Rooftop. And I believe it's the game you play or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But we get sucked into the other game without even realizing it because the churn is all around us and we're emotional creatures and we get sucked in. And that's when we start asking ourselves, is it worth it? Now, let's go back to that question. Is it worth it? Well, I think there is a reward. I think there is an ROI, a return on investment for playing this higher game of self-actualization. And here's what I think it is. There's probably more of these, but here's the ones that came to my mind is the first one is people will follow you to the proverbial rooftop. You hear me talk about rooftop leadership all the time. I mean that by the work we did in Afghanistan when we would move farmers up to the rooftop to take action and stand shoulder to shoulder against people they didn't want in their village, right? And, and fight them off, not because they had to, but because they chose to based on the social capital and rapport that was built in the days, weeks, and months leading up to those attacks, right? And you build trust when risk is low, you leverage it when risk is high. And when you do that, people follow you up to that proverbial rooftop, even when it's hard, even when it's scary. That's what they do with Aaron. That's what they do with Ben. Look at the number of followers. I keep going back to Ben and Jess, but they're freaking awesome. So look at the number of followers they built. Look at Herb, right? Why do people follow Herb Thompson? because the dude has has been through it, right? He's been through the shit, right? And, and, and people follow him up to that rooftop, even though they're scared of transition, they're worried about transition, um, they follow him, right? So that's one of the benefits of this self-actualizing, playing a bigger game approach is because people will follow you up to that rooftop. And, and, and the other thing is you're gonna be surrounded by people you respect, that's the cool thing I think that's happening on LinkedIn and in this emerging community of, of bottom-up leaders is I'm constantly surrounded by people who Niall not only respect, but they encourage me and inspire me to play a bigger game. Like just by being around them, I want to do more. My dad said to me one time, he came to, he came to one of my uh, Own Every Room events, which is what that live thing that we do. And he was laughing because he said, you know, here I am 70 some years old and every time I come to this event, I feel like I need to be doing more because of the people I'm around. And that's, man, that's, that's, a, that's a return on investment right there. If your intention is impact and your metric is relevance, right? It's the ability, the other ROI I would say on this is it's the, it's the ability to get big shit done, man. You can get big shit done when nobody else is coming to save you. You can get big shit done. And, and getting big shit done is, is, is an attractive thing for servant leaders these days. But there's a risk. And I want to talk about that risk because ultimately it takes you to the point where you ask, is it worth it? It's exhausting, first of all. It is exhausting. It wears you the hell out, doesn't it? And you know what I'm talking about. I don't even know that I need to build on this too much. Like, it's exhausting doing this kind of work. It wears you down. And I see it on the faces of my friends and peers all the time. It's also thankless. You know, a lot of this work is, is catalyst work where you not only have to understand and appreciate the complexity of a wicked, ill-structured problem, but you also have to bust your ass to connect the right people around that problem, almost with an obsession that you can't sleep at night until they're connected. 
Well, that, that means you get no credit for it. That means that you connect the right people around the problem and then you get the hell out of the way. True catalysts, true agents of change who are getting big shit done, they don't, they don't want credit. They don't seek credit, right? They move away from credit. Well, you know, we all, as according to Ivan Tyrrell, we all need some level of recognition for what we do in this world. We do. Right. So just by definition, though, you're not going to get it or at least not like the other game that's being played over there where people are seeking that shit. They actually measure their worth and their status based on that. You're going to find yourself. This is the third one. That's the risk. You're going to find yourself out over your skis all the time. I remember one time walking this driveway with you guys and the Pineapple Express stuff was roaring hard at that time. And I just remember kind of breaking down right here in this driveway, man, because I was so far out over my skis and I said it to you guys. I was like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. My buddy Carl Bury says that the definition of vulnerability is not knowing what's going to happen next and moving forward anyway. And I think that's what we have to do in this kind of work, but we are going to be out over our skis more often than not looking down at a landing zone. That's woof, boy, that's going to hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I don't know how this is going to go when I land. And that is for us and for folks like us, that's just our reality. That's our backyard swimming pool now. That's not going to change, right? So how do we find ways to just breathe into that and accept that so that we don't get exhausted? We're going to be out over our skis. How do we live with that and keep moving forward and not get into this sympathetic state all the time? Oh my God, I'm over my skis. Oh my God, I'm over my skis, right? people are going to throw the spears of anonymity at us like crazy. They already do, don't they? Right? People are going to throw those spears, man. The second you put yourself out there and you take a stand definitively, particularly against the divisionists, the institutional leaders who should be, you know, leading this stuff, the second that you do that, you are going to experience um, a lot of spears coming at you, particularly mostly in your back. And people are going to throw them from these shields of anonymity. Most of them aren't going to have the stones to confront you, right? They're just going to huck spears at you any way they can, and they try to give you a death by a thousand cuts. And that's exhausting. That can wear you down, especially when you're putting yourself out there and you're sticking your jugular out, and then you've got spears that you have to have your, you know, your spouse or your significant other pull out of your back every night. It's tough, but that's part of it. That's part of the risk that goes with this, right? It just really is. Now, I have some thoughts on walking this path that I believe can mitigate that risk and maximize those opportunities that come with this, okay? Because again, remember, we're playing a different game. So these are just some things I've learned along the way, most of them from failing miserably. Because, you know, the other thing about this kind of work of, of self-actualization and playing a bigger game is it is very much like golf or baseball. You know, you're going to fail more than you're going to succeed. I know I sure as hell do. You know, I look at my nonprofit. I think that thing's had like seven effing names, man. <laughs> it's, it's evolved. My same with my for-profit. Um, I've made so many mistakes with the play, um, and then we iterate on it. But we're in a constant state of iterating and discovery learning as we go, right? We are in the uh, realm of execution with a bias for action. And it is in the iteration of execution that we learn in real time. And that's just how it is. Um, but these lessons that I'm sharing with you are, that's why I'm walking the driveway, man, because I'm riding in it with you. I'm, I'm literally exploring this question, is it worth it, with you, 
in real time. So here's some thoughts on walking this path. Take them for what they're worth. The first one is to be intentional. You know, I think we have to choose our path. I do a lot of coaching. I do a lot of consulting with some very, very high power people and small business owners, nonprofit leaders, people that are just giving of themselves into the world. I, I give my time to be at their shoulder. In fact, that's kind of what I want to do for the rest of my life is I don't have a lot left to prove. I like to pour myself into badasses that are out there sticking and moving and really getting after it. And one of the things that I always say candidly to anybody that is just asking themselves like, God, is it worth it? And their hands are on their knees and their snot's dripping off the tip of their nose. I say, you got to choose, man. You got to be intentional. Is this what you want to do? Right. Or do, or, because a lot of the times, um, and I'll get to this in a second, but a lot of the times you're, you're playing the sport you want to play in the wrong arena or you're playing the wrong sport. So is, do, is your game transactions and status or is it strategic impact? Is your, is your metric relevance or being the best? Right? I mean, you have to be intentional. You have to choose. And that's why I kind of started with that. So that's one thing. Now, the second thing is, um, y- y- this gets into the aspect of metrics and how we measure our performance is, I would suggest that you don't measure your home runs, how many home runs you hit with, with the change from a football field to measure first down. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it really is what I see so many high-performing leaders who are playing the bigger game do is they're out there doing this amazing shit. And by the way, this isn't all nonprofit work. I mean, there's a ton of good work that's done in the for-profit world. I will tell you, rooftop leadership for us is one of them. Like we're building, our mission is to inspire 10 million leaders in 10 years on the aspect of moving people to to the rooftop through better purpose and better human connection to overcome the churn right? That's a big mission, man. That's a for-profit mission. My ass gets fucking paid to do that shit. And I'm happy to get paid to do that shit. More about that in a second, right? But, but I can't measure that work that we do there, right? To, to help people have, have better human connections. I can't measure that with the metrics that somebody would use to be on, say, America's Got Talent, right? Or to, to, to make the most money on their sales team. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking America's Got Talent. I'm not knocking making money. What I'm saying is, if your metric is impact, strategic impact, then you must measure it with relevance, not how many kudos you get or how many attaboys you get or how much is in your bank account. That is a byproduct of moving towards relevance. I do believe that if you play a bigger game, if you, if you pursue strategic impact as your end state, and if you measure your path with relevance, you will find yourself with a level of wealth, but that wealth is just defined differently. You start to think about wealth differently, right? You don't think about the things that I have and the status that I enjoy. That's for fucking amateurs, man. I mean, it really is. It's for amateurs, and it's fine. There's, I, there was probably a point in my life, I guess, where I had some version of that, and I'm sure you did too. Maybe you still do, 
But that is, that is again, if you subscribe to the self-actualization tip on the pyramid of, of Maslow, then that's, that's a booby prize, man. It's a transactional booby prize. It's a distraction. It's not the right metric. But what does everybody around us use? They use that, right? Look at the advertisements. Look at the marketing that's going on. Look at how people talk about success. So don't measure your home runs hit with a football chain, right? Met relevance is your metric. Impact is your intention. Okay, another thought. You got to sustain the message, you guys. You got to sustain the message. This, this gets into the for-profit thing. Okay, let me see how I want to unpack this. This is really important. So I, I, I have, um, a, a, my brand is, is scottman.com. You know, Alan Weiss, Million Dollar Consultant, he says that your brand is your name. Pamela Slim says your body of work is your brand. I, I agree with all that. I subscribe to all of that. I, I, and, and so the way that I navigate the world is I have a for-profit. It's called Rooftop Leadership. I have two nonprofits. I have the hero's journey that helps warriors find their voice and tell their story and transition and overcoming mental health and moral injury. And I also have Operation Pineapple Express Relief, which helps our allies and our veterans deal with safe passage issues, resettlement issues, and moral injury issues. Those are my flagships. For, those are my mechanisms, my vehicles for how I navigate the world programmatically. Now, I've got a foot in each one of those, and there's three of them, so you can imagine I'm doing a bit of a dance, aren't I? Right? And I, I'm constantly screwing it up. I'm constantly making mistakes, and I'm constantly getting it right. And I, it's, just a, it's just a way I navigate the world. But those are my vehicles by which I move towards my end state of intention and measure my relevance, okay? And that's what works for me. But, you know, what I, what I would tell you is, if I didn't have the non-for-profit, I would go down. In fact, we almost did go down. Um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this publicly or not, but when we put the play out in 2019 and we toured 16 cities, we had community hosts that, that were the ones that you know funded the play going to these different 16 cities. At least that was the way it was supposed to be. But that's not really what happened. I mean, some of them did that, but others fell woefully short or didn't provide at all. And Miss Monty and I wrote that check and we wrote that check from our private bank account. Um, same way with Operation Pineapple Express. You know, a lot of, especially after the bomb went off and we were moving people over here, we were writing those checks ourselves, right? Um, and it almost took us down, man. I mean, it almost took us down. And it was, it was really, really uh, painful. And it, it, it caused so much stress because we're sitting here thinking, okay, shit, we're doing these things. We're stepping into the arena. We're, we're, we're pursuing impact and, and relevance is our guide, but yet we're, 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 we're sucking right now. You know what I mean? And I almost lost my business over it. And one of the things that I really had to come to terms with is that if you don't value your time, Okay, if you don't value your time, no one else is going to fucking value your time. And that's the truth. Now, that's me talking to you, telling you the truth. Now, 
beware of the resistance that goes along with all this shit, right? Because there's the guilt and the imposter syndrome and all the things that when you try to charge for your time, that your resistance, that self-sabotage in your mind will say, hey man, what are you doing charging for this? You shouldn't be charging for this. You should be giving this shit away. What are you doing, right? You should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. Who the fuck do you think you are? This resonating with anybody? And then, just to make it a little bit more sporty, you get the crabs in the bucket. You get the, you get the virtue signalers on LinkedIn and all the other social media platforms that the second you put a book out or the second you tell the story from the stage or the second that you do something where you are compensated, oh, the crabs in the bucket start snapping up at you, man, trying to pull you down saying, what are you doing? Who do you think you are, right? And these are individuals who have literally no idea how you navigate the world, how you spend your time, what assets or resources you have put towards a greater good. They have no fucking clue, right? They are virtue signaling and making their assessments, their judgments out of fear and probably some degree of self-loathing, right? And if you've already got that resistance cranking through your head, you'll just shut that shit down. But what I'm here to tell you is you can't run a railroad that way. You can't sustain the message that way. Even if you are a straight up nonprofit, like if you don't sustain the message, if there isn't financial airspeed underneath your feet, then you can't do it. You can't sustain it. You will go down. You will collapse under the load. And, and I do believe that there is a very, very responsible way to answer for your life right? Like Frankel says, to answer for your life in a responsible way that allows you to have impact in the world, be relevant to the people you serve, and also to lead yourself and to care for yourself and for those around you. I, I, I totally subscribe to this notion. A buddy of mine, he's an EMT. He wrote this paper, um, Gosh darn it. I'll get you, I'll try to get you the name of it. But the, the bottom line premise of the paper is that just because we serve and we spend our life in service of others as operators does not mean we are condemned to a life of suffering. And I just think that is so true. Just because we serve and just because we do something bigger than ourselves, that does not condemn you to a life of suffering or martyrdom. That's bullshit. And either resistance will tell us that it does or somebody else will complement that resistance and tell us that it does. Neither of those are qualified to tell you that, right? You are the only one that is qualified to figure out what you need. Leadership is the management of energy, yours and those around you. And all humans are out there trying to meet their goals all the time. And if you can't meet your goals, I mean, particularly the ones on the bottom of Maslow's needs, then self-actualization eventually becomes like a shadow pursuit and it will fucking take you out. So you have to figure out what that looks like for you, but I say do so unapologetically, knowing who you are firmly, right? And, and, and follow that with, 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 with abandon, right? With, with, with pure, un, just unreasonable audacity and, and, and don't apologize for it. This is important. It really is because I see so many of my friends just sucking right now, sucking because they're doing so much good in the world and they're deathly afraid 
that if they make any revenue at all, then somehow they're not legit. And that's fucking bullshit. And if no one's going to tell you, I'll tell you. That's bullshit. And anybody that tells you otherwise is a virtue signaler. And there's something going on with them. So beware. All right, enough about that. Boy, I get fired up about that one because it's just, it's, we're taking the very people that are doing the greatest good and we're fucking them. We're screwing them over. And we should not accept that. We should celebrate. Now, if it's over the top and it's disingenuous, well, hell, of course. But do we really think that's what's going on here? Do we really think that the people that are listening to this podcast do that? No. Absolutely not. And if we're going to play the long game, and if we're going to play a game that actually allows us to celebrate life and, and pass this on to our children, then we have, there's nothing wrong with prospering, right? But the definition of prospering will look different than it does in a transactional status-based world, won't it? Prosperity will look different to those who serve others. And I know this in my heart, you guys. I know this in my heart and you deserve that. So please hear me on that. Because when you ask yourself if it's worth it, that's one of the reasons. It's a big reason. It's because you're, you're fucking crucifying yourself because you think that's what you're supposed to do. And just because you stepped into the arena and no one else did, that doesn't condemn you to a life of martyrdom or suffering. And anyone who tells you that is fucking delusional and sick. But most of the time, it's not someone else telling you that. It's you allowing resistance to put that bullshit in your head. So I'm giving you permission right now to not do that, right? To not do that. And if you struggle with that, you let me know and we'll figure it out, okay? Because that, I guarantee you, is a big, big, big reason that you're feeling this. Woo! Mm. <laughs> got to sustain that message. Here's another one. I think there's a journey after the hero's journey. We always you know, we talk about the, the hero's journey. The, the hero, the protagonist in this case, don't get wrapped around hero. The hero hears a call. Hero refuses to call in the beginning and then reluctantly answers the call. The hero goes on a journey uh, into the belly of the whale and faces obstacles and conflicts and enemies outside and inside, eventually overcomes those and returns home with a gift for the people in what she's learned or how she's changed. And that is the story that Joseph Campbell has framed out and said is the hero with a thousand faces. It's a story that gets told over and over again from Alexander the Great to Rocky Balboa to your own transition from the life you lived. But I believe my buddy Stephen Pressfield brings this out beautifully in his book, The Artist's Journey, that there is another journey after our hero's journey. So if you were an EMT, if you were a trader on Wall Street, if you were um, a baseball player, if you were a Green Beret, there's the hero's journey. That's, the, that's where you go off like Odysseus, not knowing what the fuck you're doing, and you live this life, and you go through these battles, and you come home from that career with these lessons and these things that you've learned and how you've changed and you, and you can share those and that becomes your hero's journey. But I believe as does Pressfield, as do a few other coaches that I know that there's also another journey available to us in the wake of the hero's journey. Pressfield calls this the artist's journey. I believe it's a journey of creation, a, a journey 
of this self-actualized gift that we've been given because after we've run the hero's journey, we kind of know what we're doing. We didn't know what we were doing when we went off to war as a Green Beret. We didn't know what we were doing when we went off to play baseball. We didn't know what we were doing when we went off to be a trader on Wall Street. We just went because the call happened. But now we've returned and we're scuffed up and we've got scars and we've been through struggles and we've learned things that are crystallized in our DNA. And now, now, in the wake of that hero's journey, we can step into the, a new arena an arena that's not being played by anybody else. We can write a play. We can learn to act. We can write a book. We can start a business. We can start a nonprofit. We can run for office. But it is in the realm of the artist. It is in the realm of the creative. It is in the realm of service bigger than self. The game that nobody else is playing. In an arena that is air's thin, man, and you're surrounded by these people you respect, and the deep breaths as you move through the state of flow and putting into the world what you know at night when everybody else is sleeping and you're still staring at the ceiling that you were born to put into this world. That's the game. That is the game, and that's the journey that awaits us. But what's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you those things that will cause you to say, is it worth it? Nobody's coming to save you. They're not. Nobody's going to come and tell you to do this, except maybe me. Nobody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, have you started that business yet? Have you written that business plan yet? Hey, look, I know you want to go be a contractor, but you really want to do this, don't you? Right? No one's going to do that. You have to do that. Nobody's coming. It's just you and me. Right? You have to, we have to lead ourselves through this thing. And I believe that human connection is at the heart of that, man. Human connection, uh, it's, our, it's our superpower. Regardless of what you choose on this next journey, regardless of what that endeavor is, human connection is at the heart of it. That's why I am so adamant about rooftop leadership. That's why I'm so adamant about this methodology, about this approach of bridging the churn because most people, they get sucked up in the churn. They can't deal with the churn. They're over there in that arena that's just roiling with the churn, right? They think they're playing the game, but they're not playing the game. They're just victims of the churn. But over in this other arena, there's a handful of people, they're playing the game and they're actually surfing the fucking churn in a state of flow, man, of self-actualization and impact and relevance. And human connection is the golden thread of all of that. Let's face it. You think about the people that are playing that game of transactions and status. There's one thing that history has shown us is assholes have short bloodlines, right? You may be a powerful Muldoon, but it is going to be short-lived and somebody's going to roll a grenade in the room with you. Assholes have short bloodlines. The name of the game is human connection, social capital, right? So I say surround yourself with folks that are playing the game you're playing, Whenever you can. And even if right now you're in the other arena and that's just where you are, look for opportunities to surround yourself with the people that are playing the game you want to play. Spend time with them. Engage with them. Read about what they're doing. Dig into it. Let it scare the shit out of you. That's good. When I was writing Last Out, 
I connected to some very, very prolific writers who never should have spent time with me. Michael Haig, who's worked with Will Smith. Chris Crow, who was a major writer on Last of the Mohicans, right? Acting coaches like Larry Moss, who have trained some of the best on Broadway. Because they were playing the game I wanted to play. And I was committed to that game because I knew what my intention was. I knew what my metric was. I still do. And I surround myself by those people. Am I uncomfortable? Fuck yeah, all the time. I'm constantly out over my skis going, well, this one's going to hurt. But that's the game, man. That's the game. One of the things I talk about in my upcoming book, it's coming out in October. There'll be more about that later. But I talk about meaning a lot. Because, you know, we asked ourselves, is it worth it? So we're looking for meaning, aren't we? Um, but here's the thing, you know, what Frankel said about, we have to, we don't ask life, what's the meaning of my life? Like that's arrogant as shit. That's what the amateurs do over in the other arena. What is the meaning of my life? No, man. No, 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 no. Life asks us. <laughs> life asks us and we answer by being responsible for our life. Movement is at the heart of that. Movement. That's right. Movement. In the face of the churn, in the chaos, the disconnection, when you feel terrified, when you're afraid, when you're asking yourself on a text that morning as your hands are shaking and you type your friend, is it worth it? And all of these things are closing in on you movement becomes your greatest ally in that moment. Ivan Tyrrell, the amazing thought leader at the Human Givens College, he says that movement and meaning are inextricably linked. He goes on, a truly spiritual person is not a hermit sitting on a mountain contemplating her navel, contemplating her navel, but someone in the world working serving others, and opposing tyranny of all kinds. Mm, mm, mm. That's Aaron. That's Ben and Jess. That's Zeph. That's Herb and Corey. That's the folks in Moral Compass. That's my dad. That's you. Right? You're not some hermit sitting on a mountain contemplating your navel. Right? You're in the world. You're working. You're serving others. You're opposing tyranny of all kinds. Movement and meaning are inextricably linked. I think about every time I've come across something that was a big initiative, that changed the game, that made an impact, whether it was the play, Pineapple Express, Village Stability Operations, my TED Talks, my books, I was moving. I was on a run. I was rucking. I was working out. I was in the shower. Even mindfulness and, and meditation involves horizontal movement of the diaphragm and very intentional breaths, doesn't it? Movement and meaning are inextricably linked. So when all else fails, move. Aaron, if you're listening to this right now and you know who you really are, get your ass out and move. Go for a walk, get a workout in because the minute we start to move, resistance loses. Resistance gets in our head and says, you shouldn't be doing this shit. This isn't for you. You're not cut out for this. Who the hell do you think you are? Stop. Go back to what you were doing or just sit here and wait for it to come to you. It's somewhere in your navel. <laughs> no, man. 
We got to get up on our feet and move. Go for a workout, go for a walk, take the dog out, play with the kids, do some push-ups. But when we start to move, the body knows what it's doing. The gut brain takes over. We're not thinking creatures who happen to feel, we're feeling creatures who happen to think. And the second we start to move, meaning starts to present itself to us, when we move with intention, right? The muse comes down and sits lightly on our shoulder and she says, here you go, try this shit. When all else fails, move. Couple more. This kind of game requires us to own our story or our story is going to own us. Dr. Diego Hernandez said that to me many, many years ago when we were working with veterans. And I think it's true for all of us because see, the brain is a metaphorical pattern matching organ. The brain uses storytelling as a sense-making tool. We are protagonists in our own story every second of every day, living moments. Every moment that happens to us, we look at it through the lens of a story. We are the hero in our own journey. Did you know that? So we're constantly living out a story all the time. And if we bury our story, if we play this quiet professional bullshit that has been so bastardized to mean don't talk about yourself, which is, God, it's the worst thing ever because our veterans and our military families and our first responders are our last best hope for this country. You guys, if you're listening to this, are actually the ones that are going to lead us to better days. Same way with small business owners, right? Same way with entrepreneurs. Man. We need you. If you are feeling afraid and reluctant, you're the very person that we need leading right now because that's what we're drawn to. But if you bury your story, if you don't put your story out into the world in the service of others, you cheat us out of what you've got. And your story will own you. And guess what? Somebody else is going to tell it. And it will never, ever do justice to the intention of impact and relevance you want to have in the world. It just won't. So become a storyteller. Train to become a storyteller. Be generous with your scars when you do it. Struggle is a biological necessity, according to Daniel Coyle. I talk about this in my upcoming book, too, is that if you're going to lead, you must be a strategic storyteller, and you must inform your stories with struggle. Repurposing the scars from your life, internal and external, in, in struggle stories, in scar stories, in the service of other people, so that people can locate themselves in your story, Right? When Erin talks about what she's gone through in helping Afghans and the impact it's had on her family and her life, you're immediately drawn to her. You listen autobiographically to what you're saying. And you're like, man, she's done all that shit and she's been going through this. Well, maybe I can do something too. She becomes relatable. It's a trust accelerant. It feels vulnerable. It feels clunky. But the reality is, if you're going to play this game, you have to be a storyteller and you have to be generous with your scars, right? Two best scar stories in the world. Second best one's the one you don't want to tell other people. The very best one's the one you don't want to tell yourself. That's the one that's probably going to save somebody's life. So let's wrap this up. Is it worth it? Yeah, I think it is. But we're playing a different game. We're playing in a different arena. Our intention is not status or recognition or credit, it's impact. And our metric is not how many slaps on the back we get or being the best at something. 
It's how relevant we are to the people we serve, how relatable we are to their pain. We're just playing a different game. Our definition of wealth, our definition of prosperity, our definition of happiness, it's just different than most of the people out there. And I'm sorry, I do consider those other people amateurs. They are not the people that we're going to follow when shit falls apart. They're going to follow you. Even though your knees are buckling. Even though you feel like you're not right for this. It's because you feel that way that we're going to follow you. We're not going to follow the amateur. We're going to follow the pro that plays this game. Who is adamant about human connection. Social capital, the tangible and intangible linkages with the other humans around you to get big shit done. Is it worth it? This is what Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone says. The single most common finding from a half century's research on the correlates of life satisfaction, not only in the U.S., but around the world, is that happiness is best predicated by breadth and depth of one's social connections, right? That's the game we're playing. That's the game we're playing. That half century of data, you won't find a single thing about wealth, financial wealth, or transactions directly correlating to happiness, but you'll find reams of data how how social connections provide that. There's one more reason that it's worth it. When my father-in-law, Ben, was on his last leg, he was a pretty young guy. He was in his 60s, and we got the word that he had had a brain aneurysm. And he was like a second dad to me. He was, he was a good guy, man. And he had so many friends and relationships and He was so gregarious and optimistic and he loved what I did and he was proud of what I did and he always told me that. And so when he got that aneurysm and we went down there to see him and the boys were pretty young then and Monty was so devastated by it and and they just had basically had him on life support. And the decision was made to take him off that life support. And we were in the room and you knew it was time and his family, his Wife Betty was there, his son Dirk, Dirk's wife Allison, Monty, and me. That was it. We were in that room, and they started to unplug everything, and all you could hear was Ben's breath. And um, it was these deep, deep breaths as if he were breathing in the whole world and then just letting it out slowly, savoring it. And I just closed my eyes and I listened to that breath because I had heard other breaths too. I had heard shallow breaths in my life in the final hours of people I knew. And it was not like that. They were hastened, hurried breaths trying to figure out what the hell was going on. How could this be over? Not yet. Those weren't the breaths Ben was taking. They were deep, full breaths. And I just thought, damn, 
if I ever have a choice in my life, man, like that's the ultimate metric right there. That's the ultimate return on investment is to have a breath like that as I leave the world. Because you could just feel the connections and the relationships and the love that he brought in with every inhale and slowly let out with every exhale as he savored it until he was done. And that's what I hope for you. I hope that you experience in your final moments the deep breath of a leader who left her tracks in this world, a legacy that'll last long beyond your time of self-actualization and impact and relevance. Because that's what the world needs. Nobody else is coming to save us. That's okay. I'll run these traps with you guys all day long. So if this podcast has served you, if it's, I hope it has. Aaron, I, if you're out there listening, I hope you know how proud I am of you and all of you who lead us into better days and that it is worth it. If you know somebody that could benefit from this podcast, share it with them so that we can let them know that we need them more than ever. Hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and continue to be part of Rooftop Nation as we grow this thing from the bottom up because nobody else is coming. Thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop.